0: When I started Life in the Time of Corona in mid-April 2020, I think it's safe to say that none of us had any idea how the pandemic would come to define our lives, our work, our learning, or our communities. A month before the first episode dropped, COVID was declared a pandemic. Worldwide, fewer than 115,000 people were infected. Around 4,000 people had died, 30 in the United States. Four weeks later, when this podcast premiered, U.S. fatalities crossed 10,000. Now, eight months later, the number of people in the United States alone who've died of COVID is more than 330,000. Globally, over 1,760,000 people have lost their lives to the virus. This truly is the time of corona. I started this podcast as a way to make sense of the pandemic, to figure out how to best respond to it, and to share what I learned with as many people as possible. As we transition from the year 2020 to 2021, I find myself reflecting on the impact at all levels of our lives. How have we made it through? What does adapting to a pandemic look like? What have we learned that will help us as a pandemic continues to rage into the new year, not only about how to stay safe, but about ourselves? I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a developmental and clinical health psychologist, and this is Life in the Time of Corona. Well, one of the most difficult parts of this is I don't know when I'm going to see my adult children again. I mean, we do Zoom calls, but, I, but to see them face to face. And I have a toddler grandson, and I really miss him, although I'm learning to play with him through uh, FaceTime, which is interesting. He's, he's actually adapting to FaceTime. So I am actually interacting, but not quite nearly the same. So I think those are the things that are most, most difficult. That was Tim Schutke from Episode 6, a licensed clinical social worker, talking about how 2020 was turning out so differently than what he, his family, and his clients expected. I'd hazard a guess that's true for all of us. As 2019 drew to a close, my mind was on the sorts of things most of us wonder about as one year goes into another. What could I do to make this new year better? What could I do about professional development, my private psychotherapy practice, my family, my own well being? I committed to expanding the biofeedback and neurofeedback aspects of my practice, as well as my own understanding of psychophysiology and neurobiology. I started thinking about and planning how to best support my child in preparation for their transition from a small, somewhat insular middle school to a large, sprawling high school. I wondered how to best take care of my 90 year old mother-in-law living with us since her husband passed a year prior. And I thought long and hard about how to make more space for my own creativity, something I felt I'd neglected for years. I used to write. I used to be a theater nerd and I used to dabble in audio engineering and broadcasting. That was a few lifetimes ago when the world was analog. In college, I, I literally edited together broadcasts with a razor blade and tape. The digital tools I'd glanced at more recently were both amazing in their possibilities and intimidating in their complexity. My life had drawn me away from those more creative pursuits, as over the years I focused on developing the skills in behavioral medicine and clinical health psychology that I needed for my profession. A year ago, as 2020 started, I reminded myself that I'd been on the planet for what was starting to seem like significantly more than half a century, so maybe it was time to try something. If not new, then at least different from what I was doing at the time. I spent a lot of time focused on developing my professional self and supporting my family. I wanted to do something that exercised a different part of me. I guess this was sort of a midlife crisis. I, I didn't want to shake up my whole life, but I was definitely feeling that I'd been neglecting the part of me that I'd call artistic, not necessarily because I have talent, mind you, but I certainly have some interest. It occurred to me that it would be fun to put together a podcast. I could get back into audio production and public speaking. I like figuring things out with people. That's at the heart of my clinical work. So it made sense that the podcast content would be conversations with people with the goal of figuring out ways we can better understand ourselves and better live our lives. From the beginning, I conceived of the show as a series of informal conversations between me and experts, hashing over ideas in order that the listener can come away with some practical ideas, hopefully while entertained for a half hour or so. The initial planning was fun, if a bit more involved than it probably needed. When I take on a project like this, I do tend to overplan. I dug out my old Shure SM58 indestructible microphone. I splurged on a mixer. I immersed myself in books and articles about podcasting and digital sound engineering. I listened to podcasts about podcasting. I reviewed dozens of platforms for recording, editing and hosting the podcast. I worked and reworked the format of the show and developed a detailed sequence of the episodes step-by-step from coming up with potential guests through thank-you notes after the recordings dropped. I settled on a title, In These Times, and I started putting together my initial list of people to invite. I fantasized the podcast as a mixture of Alan Alda's Clear and Vivid, Terry Gross's Fresh Air, and Ira Flato's Science Friday. If a bit of Tom and Ray Macliazzi's Car Talk or Cecil Baldwin's Welcome to Night Vale found its way in, all the better. A bit over top, sure, but as midlife crises go, this sort of delusions are probably pretty harmless. And then COVID hit. Very quickly, everything changed. Everything sort of stopped. People started getting sick, really sick, and dying of what at first was described as something like the flu. Schools started shutting down. Businesses started shutting down. People started getting scared. Scared of going out. Touching mail, scared of each other. In response to the pandemic in the last few months, I think
1: the biggest concern that I have and my clients share is just safety. First off, safety. Many of us have become acc- acclimated at home and and uh, have a certain amount of fear that's just kind of keeping us keeping us close to home.
0: Diane Grimard Wilson, a licensed clinical professional counselor, career counselor, and executive coach talked in episode 12 about how disrupted our lives and our work became. In fact, my business started to falter. The professional shift I'd made towards more biofeedback and neurofeedback clients suddenly seemed like a bad idea. I needed to see those clients face to face, and that was not happening. Like all of us, that was only one disruption and potential threat in my life. As I said before, my 90 year old mother-in-law lives with us. She has a history of respiratory illness, including COPD so she's at very high risk if she contracts COVID. We had to, and continue to have to, be very careful about any of our out of house contacts. Meanwhile, my teenager, who really needs social contact and who was about to go to a very large high school without knowing any of the students, was suddenly at home doing remote schooling without much of a plan. Like many parents, I was suddenly thrust into the role of education coordinator, along with trying to figure out how to keep us all safe and keep my practice afloat. After my teenager, I'd be the first to admit that it was a tough learning curve for me. It often seems like there was a lot more frustration and tension than actual learning going on, as we all tried to adjust to massive changes in all aspects of our lives. When I talked to Stephanie Marcucci, head of Walnut Park Montessori School, about trying to manage all these new roles and stresses in Episode Five, she articulated it clearly. Yeah, and I think a challenge, additional challenge, is we as adults have such a hard time understanding it. And so we're dealing with our own stressors, right? And in our, in our own feelings of fear and frustration. And it's hard enough for us to manage it ourselves. And then, you know, we're expected as always, of course, to be those role models
1: for the kids. And they're seeing us as frustrated and agitated and worried
0: and, you know, distracted all the time. And they're looking to us for guidance and it's hard enough for us to manage it ourselves. The early acute stage of this crisis quickly focused many aspects of my life. Like so many other people, I started a disinfectant ritual. I organized online educational and social activities for my child. I transferred as much of my work as possible to online telehealth. But I did have to stop working with a number of clients who needed face-to-face contact. And suddenly, I knew what this podcast would be. Instead of a loose focus on living our best lives, I decided to concentrate the show on managing those never ending stressors brought on by the pandemic. People I talk to on the show have areas of expertise, but few of them have applied their expertise to a pandemic. I wanted to talk with them about how we can get through this very particular crisis with all the struggle, tragedy, and uncertainty that comes with it. I hoped and continue to hope that life in the time of Corona would leave listeners with some helpful ideas about many areas of life parenting, work, loving relationships our evolving connection with technology. As I reviewed the series in preparation for this episode, I realized that in addition to the specific advice from my guests, some broader themes emerged during the show. The importance of taking time outside, a deeper understanding of this crisis, the necessity of a more deliberate life. Whatever specific topic we discussed on an episode, those themes frequently emerged. Now, it is technically inaccurate, but a very popular Western interpretation that the Chinese word for crisis is composed of the character signifying danger and the character signifying opportunity. In fact, that second character, while a part of the word meaning opportunity, really means something closer to change point. Regardless of the accuracy, the notion that difficult and dangerous situations allow for the possibility of change is a very useful notion to consider and the one that really did come up over and over again during the show. Now we cannot as individuals change the course of something like a pandemic, but there are actions we can take that affect our own experience, ways we can live a better life, whatever the circumstances. And of course, if enough individuals act in ways that change their own lives for the better, the effect expands into larger and larger communities, maybe even spreading worldwide. The notion that our individual actions have meaningful impact on something so large came up in my discussion about global climate change in episode seven, with Dr. Heather Goldstone, Chief of Communications for Woods Hole Research Center.
1: What is the action that fits best with my values and my lifestyle and where I am right now that I can take? And so I think that actually brings us back to that awareness piece of being aware of where those intersections are, being aware of your emotions, your response when you encounter those connections and realize either that an action you're having is impacting climate or that something that you do or love is being impacted by climate change, to be aware of that and go, oh, maybe that's a place for action.
0: In our day-to-day lives, we constantly face crises, points of potential danger and change. Maybe not as big and obvious as a global pandemic or climate change, but for our individual lives, often as important. How do you respond to a job loss or an illness, a life transition or loss? Something that happens shakes up our beliefs about who we are and the world around us, how do we deal with that? It may be easy to feel that everything is out of our control, so why bother to even try? That way leads to hopelessness and almost certainly the fate we fear. I think times of crises provide an opportunity for us to deliberately look at ourselves and how we are living. What do we want? What can we do? What are the constraints? Where's the wiggle room? In the first episode of Life in the Time of Corona, I talked about this with Dr. Ina Kazan, faculty member of Harvard Medical School and an expert on mindfulness, biofeedback, and health psychology. When discussing the ways we all tend to focus too many resources on what we cannot change, she offered this advice.
1: What I suggest is stopping and just asking yourself the question of okay, what is under my control in this situation? What is in my best interest as far as how to respond to this? So if the question's going through your mind is, you know, what's going to happen with this virus? You know, is my family going to be safe? Am I going to be safe? You know, what's going to happen, you know, with my job? Uh, all these questions that we do not have particularly good answers to, but there are things that are under our control to, to an extent, right? If we're thinking about how am I going to keep my family safe, it's helpful to have a flexible plan. So having some sort of uh, flexible plan that you have control over in response to, uh, you know, difficult thoughts and feelings can be helpful because it actually accomplishes uh, a goal that's realistic.
0: So simple and so practical, but very hard for us to do. We probably are wired to focus on what seems most dangerous, and that's almost always going to seem like what we can least control. How many of us, myself included, spent at least the first weeks of the pandemic scrolling for hours looking for news and any new bits of information about the coronavirus? For a number of my clients, and again for myself, a goal early on in the pandemic was to actually cut down on watching news. Seeking information is one way to reduce uncertainty. We can learn what we can and should do to deal with the situation. Unfortunately, with something like a pandemic, there was, and still is, much we do not know. Seeking information may become more about trying to manage anxiety than about the actual information. Uncertainty makes people anxious, so we try to gather enough information to be 100% certain about what to do and what will happen. That's impossible, but it's easy to keep searching forever and ever on the Internet. Every new link provides just enough to keep us going. We can search and search and search for hours. I know I did at first. I still probably spend more time than is useful trying to dig up some new piece of actionable information. This is what happens living in an ongoing crisis. A situation we can't control that is steeped in uncertainty and has serious, even deadly, potential consequences. It's a perfect storm for generating intolerable distress. And we see the consequences of it. High rates of burnout, increases in mental health and substance abuse problems, more reports of aggression and violence. It's no wonder so many people reject scientific consensus. Following health guidelines means voluntarily facing a world in which we we have much less control and much less certainty than we believe. Facing up to this is overwhelming, but that's why the notion of living our lives deliberately makes so much sense. To ask ourselves, what really matters to me? What do I really value? And then to purposely live our lives in ways that are as consistent with those values as possible. In episode four, married couple, Dr. David Helfand, a licensed psychologist, and Anna Helfand, a licensed mental health counselor, talked about making deliberate choices as a couple, although I think we certainly can follow their advice as individuals. So I think there are many moments in life that people see as pivotal. And oftentimes we hear about how life changes in an instant and it's often used in a negative way. I think this is an opportunity for people to have their life change in a very positive way, as long as they integrate and assimilate the new skills or new opportunities they have. So Anna mentioned, for example, that families are home now, and this is a chance to have mealtimes. So I would say that if couples can think about what strong values and what opportunities and ways they wanna feel are really important to them, and then start making a plan to achieve one or two of those. Making the choice to live based on our values is not necessarily second nature in the best of times. But at a time of crisis, we tend to default to reactions based on distress and the attempts to reduce that distress. If the crisis is over and done with, we can reemerge and go back to the so-called normal. But that doesn't work when the crisis has become the normal. Most of us don't have to react to ongoing acute dangers, but we do have to figure out how to live, not just survive, in the context of the ongoing threat and uncertainty of this pandemic. So why not evaluate our values and choose to live by them? Isn't that a worthwhile approach to life, regardless of what else is going on? And we can be creative about it. For example, in episode three, I was talking to Dr. Katie Fleischman, a pediatric psychologist at Boston Children's Hospital, about how some of the families she worked with We're coping with suddenly spending all day every day together in the same home. As I'm sure many of us can understand, all that time together strains even generally good relationships. She describes the clever solution one of her families came up with.
1: How do you learn when someone's working or when they need their own time or when they're opening for questions or for help um, if the teenager is doing homework or something? Uh, they came up with a great idea about using different hats. Like mom will wear one hat while she's working, so that means mom does not have the time to talk right now. And the child I was working with, when she's busy, she doesn't have the time to help out with the child rearing or helping mom out with something and they also came up with different badges. So we like d- discovered different ways of how to communicate that without communicating and to know each other's signals when we're in each other's space all the time.
0: This family was able to figure out what to do when values were conflicting. It was really important to them to spend time together, meaningful time together, but it was also important for them to have time to themselves for school, for work, for friends. That's really hard to do when you're all stuck in the same space together. But they came up with a really clever way to do that so that they could live their lives in ways that were important to them. Now, regardless of the circumstances beyond our control that we're thrust into, we all can be introspective enough to prioritize our values, creative enough to come up with ways to live them out and brave enough to make those necessary changes. In my work, I specialize in helping people make change. I help them change lifestyle habits so they are healthier. I help them change the reactions to anxiety triggers so they can face the world. I help them change the way they approach school or work or their parents or their children so that they can create better lives for themselves. Change is not always complex, but it is always hard. Fundamental change, almost by definition, puts us face-to-face with uncertainty and new experiences that we might not have as much control over as we want. Change is hard. Change during a pandemic? Indescribably hard. To me, that's even more reason to deliberately examine and articulate our values and to deliberately make choices to live in ways that are consistent with those values. I think if we do that with a stance of openness to ourselves, to others, and to what comes, we'll do better than just make it through. We'll grow and thrive and possibly even end up in a better place than we were at the beginning of 2020 thinking about how to make the year ahead even better than the year before. In episode 17, I talked with the Reverend Stacey Swain about the role religion might play in our understanding and response to the pandemic. She talked about the proactive role we have to play, even in the presence of a divine being.
1: And I think that there's been an evolution for me to think about the divine as much more being a, a impulse of an energy, a flow of of goodness and creativity of healing and a generative unfolding that is at work in the world. And that when we live in alignment with that generative unfolding, that energy and that source and that shorthand for me, I call love can rise within us as well. And we then can be taken up in that same, in that same energy and love and um, creative unfolding to, as you know, card theologian Carter Haywood once put it, be co-creators with God in bringing about the healing and the restoration of the world.
0: To me, this suggests that regardless of our current situation and how it came to be, we all have an active role to play in shaping the sort of people we want to be and the sort of world we want to live in. Isn't that, at the end of the day, what hope is all about? At the end of each episode, I ask my guests some one-thing questions. I always send a list of topics that we might cover in the discussion, but I don't include these final questions because I want to get as spontaneous an answer as I can. I suppose in the spirit of fairness I should answer them myself, even though I do have the luxury of preparation. First, what is one thing that I hope you, the listeners, take away from this soliloquy? That even with the uncertain, changing, and life-altering constraints we face, our lives are improved by deliberately figuring out and acting in accordance with the values that are most important to us. Second, what's one thing I do to take care of myself? Making this podcast. I was probably going to do it anyway, but somehow the pandemic added heft to its purpose. It exercises my creative side. It allows me to access people that I admire and from from whom I learn so much. And it gives me the sense that I'm doing a little bit more than I might otherwise do to help make the situation a little bit better. And finally, what is one thing I think the coronavirus pandemic experience has changed forever? That is a really tough question, partly because I don't like trying to look into the future and partly because I think so many things have changed. But I guess one thing that I think is fundamentally changing is the relationship we have with each other and ourselves. I don't think that the pandemic is the only factor, but it certainly has shaped the direction. This pandemic has proven to be an existential crisis to many things we probably took for granted. Our political systems, healthcare, education, work. There's a social fabric that connects us to each other even if we have fundamentally different understandings of our lives. Sometimes it seems like the stress we're going through right now is shredding that social fabric. I'd like to think that all is not lost. I think worldwide movements for social justice, facing climate change and demands for acceptance of diverse views of self and others Reflect attempts at reweaving that social fabric in ways that I believe are ultimately stronger and certainly more interesting. So, at the end of the day, after a year of sometimes deadly uncertainty, tragedy, and often gut wrenching disappointment, I think we have to be left with hope. Not a Pollyannish kind of hope, nobody would ever accuse me of that, but of a realistic, we have to really work hard and struggle with it kind of hope. I suppose that in some ways, Life in the Time of Corona is my way of struggling towards hope. It's a small show. I'm not an Alan Aldo or a Terry Gross or an Ira Flato. The show will never have the creativity or humor of Car Talk or Welcome to Night Vale. I can only try to provide the opportunity to share in an ongoing conversation that gives you a few new ideas, a few new perspectives, a bit more hope, and helps you make your best way through these crises times. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Please rate the show and leave comments. Follow me on social media, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's D-R Saul Rosenthal. And absolutely, please contact me with feedback or your own stories of the pandemic at in inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. As we move into 2021, there are signs of hope. We have vaccines, and even though they're being distributed far too slowly, they are being distributed. We know how better to treat COVID. We know how to slow its progress. And I hope that as you go into the new year, you find your own ways to follow hope.